Hello and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Enigma. Well, with over 30 episodes, this project has gone from strength to strength. So I just wanted to begin by saying thank you. Thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time to listen to these episodes. And I hope you'll continue listening and subscribing. We've had the most amazing guests and we're going to continue to have the most amazing guests. That includes today as well. So my question for today is, what does it take for you to reach your goals? There's been a lot of talk about resilience, personal resilience and organisational resilience. So it's no surprise that this episode is called The Resilient Leader. And I'm going to talk to someone I find inspiring, and that is Alexandra Altinger, who's the CEO of J.O. Hambro Capital Management. And I interviewed Alexandra as well for my book, The Leader's Secret Code, and she's been very kind to let me do it again. Enjoy. In a constantly changing world, today is as simple as it gets. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast to explore, experiment, and power up your leadership to make the difference to your business, your people, and your success. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we dig deep into global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. So welcome to another episode of the Leadership Enigma, and I'm very excited actually because I get the chance to talk to someone who's very dear to my heart, someone I interviewed for my book, The Leader Secret Code, and someone who's very kindly willing to put up with me again and talk to me on the Leadership Enigma, and that's Alexandra Ortinger. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now we're we're looking at each other, so you you are you are smiling from ear to ear, which which must be a, a good sign. It really must. Now we've. Uh, or should I say, I've had the opportunity, a real pleasure as well, to work with you a couple of times on some leadership projects. And over the last few years, I've followed your career, where you're now the CEO of J.O. Hambro Investment Capital. And we'll come to that. But I want to know a little bit more about the person behind the role. And so, Alexandra, tell us some of your story. And begin with. I'm not sure where to start, Adam. I, I know that's such a that's such a horribly open-ended <laughs> question, isn't it? <laughs> I don't want to be presumptuous because there are so many places that I know we could go to. But where would you like to start? Because there, there's a real there's a real personal story behind the success. Yeah. So, so perhaps my childhood. So you know that I'm half Italian, half German. Yeah. I lived in and grew up in lots of different countries. I think I grew up in about seven countries. Um, and moved around very often as a child. And when you move around every couple of years, you become very good at adapting. Yeah. So, you know, adapting is really um, a question of understanding the environment. And when you're a kid, your environment are schools and friends that you still have to make, new friendships. So it's very much about understanding people. So I think I got very good at that as a child, just understanding and connecting um, and I will say, you know, the more languages you speak, the more you realize just how much the language tells you about the culture. So I, I've always felt that one of, the, one of the things I did quite easily was connect and understand people from many, many different cultures. I was able to connect with them and I think through that build empathy. So I chose to go into finance for a very specific reason is I wanted to work in a very global sector. So I really love traveling. I love meeting new people. Uh, and more importantly, I never felt that I was just part of one culture, 
I always felt very multicultural from from the beginning. Right. Um, so finance, I felt certainly in the nineteen nineties after I, I finished university was really the, the perfect the perfect sector for me. I thought, you know, it's very abstract. You can actually create an investment product um, in your mind, um, and you could do it from anywhere. It doesn't really matter where you live or where you work. Uh, and I really liked that. And it was also a, a kind of area that attracted very international people. So that's something I always wanted to go into. How old were you when you were experiencing the different countries, different cultures? Give us an age range. Well, so I, I was born in the States and I was eight months old when we left the States to, to move to London. Right. And then three, four years later, we moved from London to Germany. We then moved to Belgium, then back to Germany where I went to French school, then on to France. Then I studied Japanese. I moved to Tokyo. Um, and then it was back to London, then back to Boston, shortly New York, and then back to London. So I have moved around a lot. I've, I've lived across different continents, but I would say it started very young, actually, very, very young. It really did. Now, um, I, you mentioned one country in there, which I've got to ask about, because I think you made an extraordinary and courageous decision as a young lady to go to Japan. Just just tell us, how old were you and what did you decide and why? I know the answer in part, but just tell us. So I had just finished university. I was 22 years old, almost 23. And I had studied economics and Japanese in France, in Paris. Mm -hmm. And at the time I graduated, which was 1991, France was in a bit of a recession. So it was really difficult getting a job. As I said before, I was absolutely bent on working in finance. Yep. So it was clear to me since the age of about 10 that I was going to work in finance. Um, but I realized as I graduated that I just needed to find a different path, something different from what others were doing to get noticed, to prove myself, because I just felt I didn't have the networks within France or even any European country, frankly, at the time, it was very exclusive. If you didn't know someone who worked in finance to sponsor you, it was a very difficult world to actually penetrate into. You were still um, young as well, though. You were yeah, and I was 22, yeah. So I decided, because I, I had a, a passion for Japan, loved Japan, it was just, it represented something so different from all the other developed countries that I had lived in and grown up in, um, that I decided I was going to work in finance in Japan. And I couldn't really find a job from France. So I just thought, that's fine. I'll take my student savings, which was about 3,000 Deutschmark at the time. And I right. bought one-way ticket. I couldn't afford a return on Aeroflot from, uh, to Tokyo. And it, I think the trip took about 24, 25 hours. We had two stops at the time. And I remember arriving in Narita Airport. Again, this is end of the summer, 1991. And this, you know, this feeling of elation overtook me because I thought, gosh, this is what I've always wanted to do. This is finally it. I, I'm here. I did it. That, that moment of elation lasted exactly 60 seconds. And then I was filled with a feeling of complete dread and panic where I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? And I didn't have friends there. I didn't have a job. I didn't really speak the language. I thought I did because I studied Japanese for three years. But in reality, at the time, the type of Japanese they taught you at university wasn't, you know, wasn't really the, the colloquial Japanese. So I couldn't understand anyone around me. So I thought, gosh, what am I going to do here? Wow. So I ended up in a youth hostel um, for one month with, you know, I didn't have much money. So I knew the savings had to stretch. Um, and every morning I would get up, put my only pair of shoes and my suit on and leave the hostel at six o'clock in the morning and literally wander around the financial district in Tokyo 
leaving my resume that was printed on a piece of paper, we didn't really have internet back then, and just kind of putting it through mailboxes or delivering it in person to receptionists and asking them to forward it to the HR person. Um, and it took me a month before I found my first job. That's and I actually bad. landed a job as a trader uh, with a French securities firm. You see, I, I love this story. And I know you have many stories like this because I say to people, listen, success leaves clues. So there are some clues already, aren't there, with the stories that you have and the experiences that you have from just focus, determination, resilience, optimism. Most people, I don't know whether people would do that nowadays. A one-way ticket to Japan with a simple desire to do what it is you are passionate to do, and away you go. With that, I don't know whether that would happen now. You have kids, you have five kids, I have two teenagers. Would it happen now? I don't know. I, so I do feel the world is more connected, Adam. Yeah. It feels to me like it's less of a stretch today than it would have been, you know, 40 years ago or 30 years ago. It feels like today you have internet, you can talk for nothing on the phone. At the time, we didn't have mobile phones. So, you know, calls were made from fixed lines and they would cost a fortune. Yeah. And at the time, you know, it really did feel like the outside of the world. And everyone, everyone, especially my parents said, you are absolutely out of your mind. Do not go. There wasn't a single person who encouraged me, not a single one. But in a way, I think I'm conditioned to actually take that on as a challenge. So the more people tell me not to do something, the more I, <laughs> the more I attracted, I think I am to that challenge. Wow. So yeah, I did go. I'm not sure I'd recommend it to my kids today, just because, um, you know, it's a, it's a fast paced world. So I, I do think it takes, you know, resilience, as you say, to kind of land on your feet. Uh, but I think it was an incredible experience for me. It was one of those experiences that tested me to the limit. It was hard. Mm -hmm. So not just getting there and not just getting a job, but then staying in the job and, you know, I ended up taking on a role of, of prop trading on the arbitrage desk, and I didn't even know what arbitrage was at the time. So I ended up working very late hours every night to try and understand how to build models for option valuation when that wasn't even my background. Um, you know, how, how fluent no were you? How fluent were you in Japanese at this point? So, well, when I arrived, I, I thought I could actually converse, but it turned out I couldn't understand a word because I'd been taught the very formal theoretical Japanese yes. was actually Japanese is all about one root and then you conjugate it in different ways depending on the context that you find yourself in so it took me a while to adapt and start to understand people but I was having to work in Japanese so all my trades were in Japanese and I had to work in Japanese throughout the day so I had to be careful not to make mistakes with uh, with giving trade orders or instructions so just think of all the the variety of countries people cultures challenges that you had experienced and had proactively taken on yeah. Yeah. so when we spoke when you kindly uh, did the interview for me for the leader secret code we talked a lot about resilience and i know you have a point of view a strong and a point of view that i've shared with others as well and we're going to link it because obviously you are now doing your second ceo role i believe and in the middle of a pandemic so tell us a little bit about your perspective on resilience, because as I say, success leaves clues. So I think you build it. And I genuinely believe that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I believe that. And I think it's one of those things, you know, it's, I, I always go back to a lovely Chinese proverb that says, prepare not the road for the child, but the child for the road. Right. And I love that proverb because I think about it a lot with my children as well. You know, let them fail, let them stumble, let them fall 
but be there when they pick themselves up again so that you can, you know, lend them a hand if they need it, but don't stop them from making their own mistakes when they have to make them. And I think resilience is the same. You know, you kind of have to put yourself through situations that test you. You have to take yourself out of your comfort zone time and time again. Mm -hmm. And every single time you do that, you end up that much stronger. Um, And then you test yourself, you know, to a different level. If I could just give you an example, when I was 14 years old, I didn't tell you this story, Adam. We we had just moved back to Germany from uh, Belgium. And at the time, my parents put me in, in, it was pretty much the village high school. And I did not like it. I did not like it one bit. I was there for about two weeks and I decided I just can't be at this school. This is just not a school for me. I, I had nothing in common with the other children. Um, you know, I, I just felt very different from everyone. So without saying anything to my parents, one fine morning I set off and I, I, I said, well, I'm actually going to go and find another school for myself. And I looked in the yellow pages because that's all there was at the time. 14 Sorry? years old. 14 years old. 14 yeah. I was, yeah. Looked for an Italian school, no Italian school I looked for. An English school, no English school. Americans, no American school. But I found a French school in Frank. It was 60 kilometers away from where we lived. Right. So, uh, and I found this French school. I thought, well, that's fine. I'll just apply to this French school. I don't speak French, but that's just a detail. I'll, I'll just learn French. So I set off in the morning. I had to take a bus. I had to take a train. I had to take a subway and then a tram. It took me about two and a half hours to get from home to the school. And again, I didn't say anything to my parents. Uh, and I went to the school and it was the week before they were going to reopen because the French have slightly longer summer holidays. And I found one of the secretaries and the headmaster. And I went in and I said in very poor French, I was basically speaking German, please, can I register my name? My parents wanted to come. They couldn't make it. But you need to put my name down because I'd like to start. Yes. And they said, that's fine. But there's one problem. You don't speak French. And this is a French lycée. And I said, but that's not a problem. I said, I'll learn it. And they said, no, but it is a problem because we're very academic you are basically going to have to go one year below where you ought to be. So you're going to lose a full year because you have to redo that year just, just to prove to us that you can actually right. understand that the substance. I said, that's fine. So they put my name down and a week later there I was at school. And I remember my first couple of months, I had my first French class. I couldn't understand what people were talking about. Couldn't understand a word. I was given a a test, my first test, I got four points out of 20. Now I was used to being a pretty good student generally. So this was really a shock to my system. (laughs) Four out of 20, five out of 20, five out of 20. And you know, they were teaching us 16th century French literature and I I really struggled, but every evening, so I would do that 60 kilometer trip into school, 60 kilometers back, I'd get home very late in the afternoon, early evening. I'd have a very quick dinner and I would just go and work. And I looked at the French dictionary, French encyclopedias. I studied and studied. I studied every day until midnight, one in the morning. And at the end of the three months, there was a teacher's get together. And all the teachers decided that at that time I was good enough to then be bumped up by by a year. So they bumped me up by a year. Um, And, you know, to me, again, it's, yeah, I took myself out of my comfort zone. I remember my father telling me, you're crazy because we can't help you. We don't speak French. You know, you live in Germany. Neither of us are French speaking. We've never really spoken French. We can't help you with anything now at school. And you don't even speak French. (laughs) And I thought to myself, but that's okay because I can learn. Talk about resilience, but I think it's all these small things that when you put them together, you Mm -hmm. then realize 
you know, just how much you, the sky's the limit if you just put your mind to it. You know, that they're all small challenges and, and, and you just accumulate them, accumulate them. So by the time, and I, I've always taken the hard path. I think I told you that. Yeah. So, But I've always enjoyed that because, again, it takes me out of my comfort zone. It's a challenge. It taught me a whole new language, a new culture. Um, you know, to this day, I speak French to my husband and we speak French at home. So, you know, and it's really allowed me. It, I think languages are like an insight into people's psyche. Uh, you know, it's just a fascinating tool. Where did this fearless single-mindedness come from were you in some ways the child that your parents simply couldn't control (laughs) where where did it come from Alexandra I love these stories so many other examples (laughs) trust me we're doing another episode trust me I'm coming back to you after this pandemic where did that come from where does a 14 year old get that no I know what I want and I'm on the bus I'm on the train I'm finding the school I don't speak the language and I put myself in and then the 22-year-old, he says, I know I want to do finance and I've got a limited amount of savings. So I bought a one-way ticket to Japan. Where does that come from? Look, I, I, I think I was always very, I wasn't a contrarian child. I remember being very shy, actually. In fact, I was so shy at one point when I was about seven or eight that the teacher went to my parents saying, I think she has learning difficulties because she doesn't say a thing in class. And the reality was I was so shy. I couldn't open my mouth to talk. Wow. So that's obviously all changed. <laughs> and perhaps it's just some kind of a, you know, a realization at some point in your life that, yeah, that you just have to, to if you don't do things and, um, you know, kind of follow your dreams and um, dare, d- dare to, to do something that hasn't been done before, it's never going to happen. You'll never end up where you really want to end up if you just always go with the flow and wait for things to come to you. It doesn't happen that way. Um, so I suppose it was part of it was that desire just to, you know, perhaps get to a better place for myself. And, and I think the fearlessness was perhaps this idea that because I had moved around so much as a child, yeah. I wasn't daunted. I didn't find some of the things that other people would find daunting, you know, learning a new language for me when you already I already spoke three at the time. So learning a fourth, the idea of learning another language in three months wasn't something that I found daunting. Wow. So perhaps there's there's some of that in there as well, that, that you know, I just didn't realise the challenge or see the challenge in the same way that other people would see it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm shuttling forward now because it's, it's, it's a real privilege for me to talk to such an eclectic mix of people on this show. And now I'm talking to a number of CEOs from different sectors. So I'm shuttling forward. You're now in your second CEO role at J.O. Hambro. Just, just give the listeners an idea of, of the challenge you took on on a personal level as you moved into a, a, this amazing role. But it was about a year ago. No, because uh, you, you took over a year ago. Just yeah. over a year before okay. the yep. pandemic hit, right? So, so tell us a little bit about what that role was to do for you on a personal level, the challenge it was now to give you. Yeah, so I've always enjoyed leading. And, and I say leading very generally, and I know it can mean lots of things to lots of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've always felt that if one has a view on how to do things better and you feel strongly about that, then you should try and put yourself in a position where you can then make that happen. Right. You know, and if, if you're a junior person in the organization, you can have a view, but it's very difficult to affect that view or to make that view actually impact the way the business is run. Mm-hmm. So I felt very early in my career that some of my biggest frustrations were just not being in the driver's seat when, when I felt I had a certain amount of clarity around what needed to be done. So I've always enjoyed 
I think having that responsibility, so being able to say, I think things can be done differently and better. And by the way, I want that accountability. I want to be made responsible for doing things better. So, so, so that was, I think, what really um, attracted me to a CEO role because there are no excuses. You know, the buck stops with you ultimately. Yes. So it's that that full responsibility, that unequivocal, very clear responsibility that you take on in that role. Um, and, you know, in few places is that responsibility as clear as in a regulated sector like 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 finance, like asset totally. management, yeah. you know, where you are absolutely responsible. You're responsible for conduct. You're responsible for, you know, your clients. You're responsible for the business that you run in a very fiduciary way. So it's, it's a very clear, very, very clearly articulated responsibility. And that's something that has always attracted me. Um, and as I said, I've, you know, all my life I've worked in finance and I've just always enjoyed the intellectual stimulation uh, from, from being surrounded by smart people. You obviously also, you like responsibility. You thrive on accountability and accountability in a regulated sector as well. And whenever I talk to you, you're always very clear in the direction of travel. I know you have a very strategic mindset and some, there was a phrase that came out when you and I chatted for the book, and I've, it's always resonated with me, and it's something I share anyone who will listen to me. And that was, I described you as strong values, loosely held. Tell me a little bit about that as a, a leadership methodology. I think it's fundamental to what I believe is good, effective leadership. This idea that you need to be very clear about what does success look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what, what defines success? How do you define success? What does good look like? On a personal and level. On a personal level, but also professionally. Yeah. What, what does professional success look like for the firm, for the business? Yeah, and that you define that very, very clearly to the people around you whom you lead, but you then let people get on with it. If you have competent people, if you surround yourself with competent people, allow them to find the path that will lead to that success. Yes. Don't micromanage exactly every curve and every small road that they need to go on to get there. They can figure it out themselves. Okay. I think as a leader, what's really important is to articulate a vision and define what where it is that you want to get to. But once that's clear, you then need to step back and allow others to achieve what they know they need to achieve in their way. You can be there to help them if they're at crossroads, but you can't micromanage or um, map everything out, you know, to, to in too granular way, because otherwise I think you, you take away that creativity. That, I think that's why that strong values loosely held theme came out so strongly from the interview that we did for the book. And there's that leadership dilemma of giving great clarity and then stepping back and allowing and empowering and trusting but I know you've also got a view, haven't you, that it's also about the detail. So you've got to be strategic and actually you must have a clear strategy in order to also be successful. Well, other than to say, you know, you and I have always talked about this pyramid, the strategy pyramid, the vision is at the top and then you have the goals, the strategic goals, which are the objectives. And underneath that, you have the roadmap, which is a strategy that you need to follow to achieve those objectives. And you obviously need to define milestones. And then directly underneath that are the people. So it's all yes. about people. It's all about you know, bringing those people with you and that team with you, and that's absolutely critical. So, so that's where a good leader comes in. It's not just having clarity of strategy, 
and, and, and defining the right strategic objectives that you're actually aiming for, but it's also surrounding yourself with competent people and then motivating them to get there. Um, and, and that's just as important. Now, you took on the role, a role that you really sought and really wanted to take on just before the pandemic, and then the whole world went into <laughs> bonkers. Have you had to adapt your style or your mindset in order to get you and a global business through this? I know we're not through the pandemic yet, but how have you had to adapt? Yeah, and that's a really good question, Adam. So we have had to adapt in the sense that very early on, it became clear that working remotely was, it was more difficult, it's clunkier. You know, so as much as people say, oh, I think I'm just as productive at home, if not more, because I don't have the commute. Well, by now we know that actually people feel they work as hard or harder. So the work days are actually more intense. Mm-hmm. Um, the commute has been replaced by meetings now, inevitably at the beginning yes. of the day and at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. um, and actually we're not more productive, we're less productive as a firm. Uh, and I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that so much can be achieved just sometimes by getting people in a room together, being able to read body language, understanding when is it the right time to push a little bit harder? When is it the right time to pull back? Um, you know, how do you have difficult conversations or ne- when you need to negotiate? That's much more difficult when you have to do all of that remotely. Yeah. So, you know, we've done a few things. I mean, number one, I think we've recognized that we're just not as productive collectively. So we've had to pare back some of our ambitions in terms of strategic objectives. You know, and right. sometimes it was a case of making a choice, saying we can't do all of this over the next six months but maybe we just pick the two or three most important ones and let's all rally around that and try and get those over the line, uh, which is okay. what we've done. Um, we've also recognized the fact that, you know, difficult conversations are more difficult to have on screen. They just are because you barely see someone's eyes. You know, you kind of see the expression, but you can't the really micro see, expressions. you know, how people take feedback. And, and so what happens is I think you have people with whom you already have strong ex- existing relationships where you have a certain degree of trust already built and that respect around competency and it's very easy to continue to work with those people remotely then you have a whole set of other people where perhaps you hadn't spent as much time with them I mean in my case I just come into the role so I hadn't actually had the benefit of spending much time with them and I think it's more difficult with those people when you don't have a trusted relationship you know you have less that you can leverage digitally or virtually than you otherwise would very much a client-centric business it's difficult to build new client relationships on the screen it's difficult to be funny on the screen because you know especially to a group of people it's difficult to chair a meeting and do a brainstorming session on screen with lots of people (laughs) i do i I do i try to do my best difficult because people feel more exposed on screen funnily enough because they can't read other people's body language so I do think that there was a lot of adapting required. And, you know, the other big, big piece is the mental health piece, which is something no one ever talks about. Yeah, tell us about Especially not that. in finance, because, you know, we're all seem to be, you know, alpha male dominated. Everyone's fine. Everyone's perfect. Yes. Everyone's competent. Everyone's always confident and comes across as very articulate. Uh, and so I think it's a world where, people struggle to show vulnerability mm-hmm. because it's a very polished world, or at least it has traditionally been a very polished world. And, um, you know, so I think there's a persona that, that, that really, um, you know, that, you, that, that, that tends to be the persona that people associate with, you know, leadership and finance. 
And I think that's changing. Thank goodness that's changing. But I do think it makes for a more difficult environment when something's not going well for people to then raise their hand and, and talk about that. Um, so that's just something that we've been very sensitive to as a, as a leadership team yeah. within the business. And we've just done a huge amount of work around um, you know, mental health webinars and bringing speakers in and, you know, providing helplines. And it's not, we haven't had very broad take up, but I think for the few individuals to whom it was important, mm-hmm. that they, they did feel that this was, that this was helpful. And, and that's how I measure the success, you know, and I think we need to keep going and keep reaching out because, you know, it's difficult to find a one size fits all. I, I said to you, we chatted briefly last week that I've, I was looking forward to chatting to you again today and you know that I did the interview with Cheryl Stokes um, last week and actually the more I've reflected it's probably the two of you collectively who are at fault now for this passionate focus I have on human-centered leadership because I think that comes out in everything that I see you do and the conversations that I have and the same was with Cheryl. There's that link again isn't there between balancing what needs to be done for the business and balancing what needs to be done for the people. And so this arena of mental health, and no one really knows what's coming over the horizon off the back of a very challenging time for many. But you've already made some decisions, haven't you, in relation to opening times? And so tell us about, because again, this is the, you've taken accountability to actually make some business decisions which have people impact. Tell us a little bit about that. Hugely. So, you know, we just felt we were at bandwidth. And I I feel, again, as the CEO, that you cannot simply move in a direction or at a pace that is not sustainable in the long run. It, yeah. it just doesn't work. You're kidding yourself if you think that that can just continue. You'll start to lose your best people. People become demotivated. You lose the focus. You lose the creativity. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. So we said at the end of last year, let's look back and let's just see how we feel collectively as a leadership team and what we're hearing from staff and employees. We run a number of engagement surveys and people felt that they were close to burnout, you know, because they had very long days and there were no breaks in the days and the meetings were too many and they went on for too long. So So we just said, that's fine. Let's just take some radical decisions here. Uh, We soft closed our office for the first time between Christmas and New Year. So literally between the 24th or the 23rd and the 4th of January, it, you know, we just said we discourage any email, right. we discourage any client call, we strongly discourage, no communication unless it's absolutely urgent, it's closed. Um, and that was, it was almost nurturing in, in the sense yeah. that we were able to provide a safe place and space between Christmas and New Year for the staff where no one felt that the next morning when they got up, they would have missed out on, you know, 20 or 50 emails coming in overnight. Yes. And all of a sudden that, that anxiety level just went down because people were no Recharge. longer scared of missing out on something. Yes. So that was one thing. We've since decided that every Friday we close at three, which is which we were, we're holding everyone to. Good. So again, no more meetings after three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. So everyone, even if we work hard, you know, through the week, we at least have that one to look forward to. And I think for a lot of parents who have young children that are homeschooling, that's important because it oh, means yeah. that they can actually take an afternoon off, yes. um, you know, and, and just not feel guilty that they can't check emails or that they're missing something. Um, we've 
uh, shortened all our meetings, Adam, from one hour to 45 minutes. And the half hour meetings, we've shortened them to 20. And we have a mandatory 15 minute break in between all our meetings through the day. It's little um, things. We've also it? grayed out our lunchtime. We have lunchtime moratoriums right. from 12.30 to 2. And we don't start our official meetings before 9 a.m. if we can help it. So, so we've done a lot. And I have to say, it's been three weeks now. It's made a massive difference. I mean, to I me bet. personally, it's made a massive difference. Because, you know, the days are short, the days are gray. The only time you can often get out and still see the light is, is over lunchtime. Yes. And when people constantly put meetings in and they, they do that with all the right intentions, but not realizing that it may be someone's only opportunity to actually get some fresh air. Um, I think that was important. And I'm trying to lead by example. So I'm really trying to respect oh, everything we yeah. said we do, because I always feel the tone has to come from the top. And so far, it's it's made a real difference. It's just given us an extra. It's given us a breath of fresh air. It feels like, yeah, if, it just feels that we we can go on for longer. You yeah. know, it's like that that second wind when you're running a marathon. That, that you I, get that second wind halfway through that you feel okay. I can, I can now go on. You know, for, for the next half. I do love chatting to you, Alexandra. I do. Um, and so it takes me to our next point, which is you're also for many. You're, I know you mentor people as well. You're mentoring those who are coming through the system. Uh, you're an inspiration as a leader and also as a female leader. But I've got a question for you. There are so, I think the pandemic will may have inspired many young people, men and female, many young people to go it, as in to go for their dream, go for their passion, either as an entrepreneur or within corporate. Yeah. With all of the experiences that you have, the challenges that you've overcome and the challenges that you've actually run towards, what advice would you give young people now coming out of the back of a pandemic to really live their dream and live their purpose? I would say never listen to anyone, anyone ever who tells you you can't do it. Do not listen to them ever. And always surround yourself with people who give you energy and who, who are positive always, because sometimes it's negative people that can just drag you down. Um, so I would say always follow your dreams. Be clear on what those dreams are, like have mm -hmm. dreams yeah. and, and really think them through and understand why, why they, they, they make you feel good and why you want to aspire to them. Understand why, but then go for it and don't let anything stand in your way. I always think the sky's the limit. I really do. Still. Um, and I just think it's important. You, you have to do things with passion. You only live once. Yeah. You know, follow your passion, follow, yeah, follow your dreams. Um, you know, you'd be surprised. You, you can surprise yourself. You know, and also never feel like things are static because you can always develop. You can always learn new things. You can always evolve. You can always do things you never thought possible. You know, and, and it, I think it's fantastic to get to the end of your life and be able to look back and say, you know what? At no least, regrets. Yeah, no regrets. And even the things I, I, didn't, I didn't achieve, I know I, I tried. I gave it a fair trial. I, I really did try to do it. And if it didn't work, then so be it. But at least there's no regret around you know, having stayed in my comfort zone and not having tried. So I think that's really important. And this is good advice for anybody. Would you add anything to that? Because there will be some, I hope, some senior leaders and some CEOs maybe listening to this as well. And we've all had to deal with the pandemic in different ways. But would you add anything to that advice, which I think is applicable to all of us, for those now who are leading organisations, small, medium and very large? Well, I, I so I, I, what I would add, Adam, is I think empathy is really important in leadership. Yeah. And, you know, we talk a lot about authenticity these days. I, I think at the end of the day, people 
have to trust you in order for them to follow you. And, and that trust is not something that can be imposed. And it's not about authority. It's not about, you know, projecting confidence or being overly confident in some instances. I think it's about listening. I think it's really about understanding who, who is the team that you need to inspire and, and really taking time to understand each individual and connecting with them. And I think once you understand that, you, you then know what motivates them, you know, and, and what's important to them. And I suppose I'm finding that what motivates people is increasingly non-financial. It's, it's really about the intangibles. Yes. It's about the friendships, the networks, the trust that you build, you know, the purpose, um, the good that you can do in the, in the broader environment, in the world around you, the values that you represent. It, it's understanding those things. And that doesn't, that doesn't come out when you try and lead with authority or, or in the you know, old-fashioned conventional sense. It doesn't come out when you just have a loud voice and you, you know, and, and, and you give instructions or, you know, you kind of emphasize your position. You, you, you quash that. And what you actually need to be doing is, is bringing that out of people so that people can find their own compass and they can feel that the work they're doing is aligned either to work-life balance that might be really important for them in terms of their families or to, simply from a professional standpoint, aligned with their values around, you know, hopefully leaving the world in a better place than they found it. So, so I think all of that's important, but you can't tease that out if you, if you lead from the top down. It has to be in an engaging kind of way. And I think finance has never been an area that has developed that. It, it feels like of, of all the sectors, it's probably one of those sectors that has for a long time, you know, been led by people who have a loud voice, um, you know, who are respected because of the, the, the thought leadership they bring, but not necessarily, you know, a, a, as good human leaders. Yeah. Um, and so I'd like to think that that will change. And I like to think that the next generation, you know, in terms of, the voice that they have within organizations, certainly across finance, that they're able to maybe to surface some of that and to change the way that we think about it so that they can be empowered. So maybe that's actually part of your legacy as well. If you lead that charge. <laughs> well, I hope so, Adam, but I still have many years ahead to, to, to create any kind of legacy. <laughs> Listen, I could now talk to you for on next week. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> focus on Monday. <laughs> I know it's just the, the small, medium, and long-term goals. Really, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I could talk to you forever, which would be deeply unfair, as it's nearly the weekend. I just want to say thank you so much for for agreeing again to chat and to take part in some of my crazy projects. Adam, it's such a pleasure as always. Have a great weekend. Lovely you talking too. to you. Join us again next week for more essential insights on the leadership enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or via our website, www.pca-global.com. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening.